for the next 25 minutes or so, I now want to turn our attention to community. I want us to talk in a little more detail about community. Here's why. Slide about to come up. There was a famous study done by a Canadian psychologist on the Blitz of London in 1940 and 1941, that found that the rates of depression went down across London during the Nazi bombardment. And after the bombing had stopped, the rates of depression, they shot right back up again. And his interpretation was that it's not that human beings have this kind of perverse love of being bombed out of their homes. It wasn't that, although one could have drawn that conclusion, maybe. It's more down to the sense of community in air raid shelters that brought the whole city together. You see, as many of you know today, from your own personal experience, there is something about living in a city, isn't there, that breeds loneliness. It's like you're surrounded by tens and tens of thousands of people, but they are all strangers to you. And because cities are so incredibly transient, it can be a real struggle, can't it, to develop any in-depth, long-term relationships. People are always passing through. You you start building a friendship, then people move on. But there's something about the blitz in London that out of nowhere brought people together. But over the seven or eight decades since then, I think it's fair to say there has been something of a rapid decline in community, resulting last year, you might have seen it in the press, Theresa May appointed the UK's first ever loneliness minister. In her statement to the press as she launched this new post, Theresa May said, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. In fact, the UK has been described as the loneliness capital of Europe. Uh, An official study suggests that the inhabitants of the UK are less likely to know their neighbors or have strong friendships with people than anywhere else in the EU. And I think we're on the brink of getting even lonelier still as we divorce ourselves from our close neighbors. To compound matters, there are currently 7.6 million single-person households in the UK, 7.6 million people living alone, which perhaps goes some way to explaining the findings of some more recent research, which suggests that more than 9 million people in the UK privately admit they are always or often lonely. Just to break this down a little bit more, according to Age UK, one million older people haven't spoken to anyone in the last months. Almost four million say that the TV is their main form of company. And the charity Action for Children has found that a quarter of all parents would say they feel lonely and isolated. Another study of 18 to 34-year-olds showed that they were more likely to feel lonely often, to worry about feeling alone, to feel depressed because of loneliness. And with loneliness, 
comes a wide range of different health problems. One study concludes that lonely people have a 64% increased chance of developing clinical dementia. Another study found that a lack of social connections among lonely people poses a similar risk of early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And loneliness has a greater impact on your lifespan than obesity. But aside from the health of our minds and the health of our bodies, I think the health of society at large is at risk right now. There are studies that show how individualism leads to loneliness, and loneliness inevitably ends up leading to tribalism. And the writer David Brooks calls tribalism the dark twin of community. Whereas community is based on mutual love, tribalism is based on mutual hate. Community is all about who and what we are for. Tribalism is very much what we are against. Community is about generosity and honor and a celebration of all of our differences. Tribalism is a battle for scarce resources where we kill or be killed. If God sets the lonely in families, individualism sets the lonely in tribes. As David Brooks concludes, the tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is that what began as an ecstatic liberation ends up as a war of tribe against tribes that crushes the individuals it sought to free. And I suggest that is one of the biggest problems, the most significant challenges facing us in our society right now. The question is, Does the Bible have anything to offer by way of a solution to this? Does it have a solution for a culture that is descending at alarming speed deeper and deeper into individualism, loneliness, and tribalism? Does it suggest a different way, a better way of living? But in case you're wondering... I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, or else it would have been a very short and rather depressing message. I think the answer is yes. And to back this up, what I want to do in the rest of our time is going to be slightly unusual uh, because we're not going to camp out in one passage and kind of explore it verse by verse, word by word, syllable by syllable. Uh, I'm simply going to read you 59 examples from the New Testament of what it means to be a follower of Jesus before they're making a few quick comments on how to live this out. So here goes. So read these 59 different verses. I want you to do a bit of work as I'm working up here. I want you to work out what the common denominator, the the common thread tying all of these verses together really is. So here goes. First of all, Mark 9, verse 50. Jesus says, live in peace with each other. John 13, verse 14. Wash 
one another's feet. Uh, John 13, verse 34, John 13, verse 35, John 15, verse 12, John 15, verse 17, five appeals for us to love each other. Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 13, verse 8, love one another. Romans 14, verse 13, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15, verse 7, for those who are trying to write all these down, uh, maybe I'll post them uh, somewhere uh, on social media this week, but keep jotting it down nonetheless. Uh, Romans uh, 15, verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Romans 15, verse 14, instruct one another. Romans 16, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33, whenever you gather to eat, you should all eat together. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, have equal concern for each other. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12, uh, two repeated instructions to greet one another with a holy kiss. Galatians 5, verse 13, serve one another humbly in love. Uh, in Galatians 5, verse 15, it says, if you bite and devour each other, I was not saying you should do that, but if you were to do that, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Galatians 5 verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Galatians 6 verse 2, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians 4 verse 2, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4 verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Ephesians 5 verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5 verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, almost halfway through. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 3, in humility consider others better than yourselves. Colossians 3 verse 9, do not lie to each other. Colossians 3 verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Colossians 3 verse 16, teach one another and admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12, make your love increase and overflow for each other. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9, love each other. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 18, encourage each other. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, encourage each other and build each other up. Hebrews 3 verse 13, encourage one another daily. Hebrews 10 verse 24, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 10 verse 25, encourage one another. James 4 verse 11, do not slander one another. James 5 verse 9, don't grumble against each other. James 5 verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. 1 Peter 3 verse 8, love one another deeply from the heart and live in harmony with one another. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, love each other deeply 
1 Peter 4, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 1 Peter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. And then six references in 1 John, in 1 John 3, verse 11, 1 John 3, 23, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 4, verse 11, 1 John 4, verse 12. Actually, it's not 1 John, but 2 John, 2 John 5, all say, love who? One another. You've got the message. So there you have it. 59 insights into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I think you probably spotted the common theme. What was it? One another. This this emphasis running through each of those verses about one another or each other or what our life is like together. It's as though the New Testament writers assume two very simple things about every follower of Jesus. That they assume, assume, first of all, that you are in community with others. Not, not just in a meeting like this every Sunday, but actually in a community where you know and are known. That's the first assumption. The second one is they also assume it's really messy. That, like all of them assume that there are people you have to accept because in all honesty, you don't really want to. Uh, and that there are people you have to work really hard to honor because if you're being honest, you are full of contempt for them. And there are people you need to actively instruct because you look at them and you think they just don't have a clue. And there are people you need to bear with and confess to and forgive. The uh, uh, assumption running through pretty much all of those verses is that you are in this kind of community and it's going to be messy for you. But at the same time, it's the primary place, the main place where you are learning together to love Jesus and over time become more like him. Now, I think my observation would be there are a couple of mistakes we can tend to make when we think of community. Here they are. First of all, I think often we mistake connectivity with community. We all know, don't we, that We are probably more connected now than we've ever been with texts and emails and FaceTime and WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, not to mention trains, planes, and automobiles. I mean, we are incredibly connected, and I love the world we live in. I love the opportunities that all of that affords. But despite all of that, Loneliness is not only still on the rise, as all of those statistics earlier revealed, it is actually through the roof. In fact, in study after study after study, there's actually a direct correlation between social media use and loneliness. The more you use digital technology, the more lonely you're likely to be. It's like we spend more and more time 
hours on end, liking photos from people who we kind of vaguely remember meeting once or three or four decades ago, maybe going to the same school as we think, spend more time doing that than we do in face-to-face conversation with a close friend. We mistake connectivity with community. Secondly, we mistake chemistry with community. Uh, What I mean by chemistry is that spark we get when we find an instant connection with somebody who is like us. As C.S. Lewis once put it, the root of all friendship is you too. You like those things as well. Uh, You like the same music as me. You like the same author as me. You are watching the same box sets on Netflix as me right now. You support the same sports team as me. Not a great surprise. There's an Everton supporter. I mean, they're they're everywhere. Sport for choice. But you, 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 you dress the same as I do. You have similar hobbies to me. It's like the, the, this spark when we meet someone who has similarities. We, we feel this instant connection. You know, over the years, I've met any number of people like that. But most of the time, we don't do life together. We, we might see each other a few times a year. We, we don't share day-in, day-out life when we are tired and grumpy and impatient and under pressure. Our point is, we can have community with people that we have very little chemistry with, and we can have chemistry with people that we have very little community with. Now, of course, they can overlap. It, 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 it's the dream when they do overlap. But what I want you to see is they don't have to. So if community isn't connectivity or even chemistry, what is it exactly? Well, without wishing to baffle you with Greek, and I don't do this often, but in Greek, the word is koinonia. It can be translated as fellowship or partnership or to share or to have in common. It can be defined as people with common interests living in a particular area. And so right away, just to throw it out there, I think this pretty much rules out online community. It, it, real community, genuine community, is by definition people you live in proximity to and get to see on a regular basis. And so putting all of that together, what then is community for us as Christians? Well, it's simply people that we live close to. And what do we have in common? Well, first and foremost, it's nothing other than Jesus. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our cultural preferences. It's not our stage of life. It's not our educational background. It's not our job. It's not our taste in music. The one common denominator is Jesus. And so, I think community is actually a really simple idea. Don't get me wrong, it's incredibly hard work, but it's not complex. It is simply people that you live by and follow Jesus with. John Mark Homer argues that if you studied the life of Jesus, 
the two most important practices that he modeled are silence and solitude and community. And I think, as I reflect on my own life, my own personal experience will certainly back that up. For for me, the, the best moments of encountering and experiencing Jesus are either when I'm alone with him in the quiet or when I'm in community together with other followers of Jesus. If you were to read the four Gospels, you see that Jesus kind of oscillated back and forth between those things, between times when he withdrew with silence and solitude and then re-entered into community. There was this rhythm in his life of retreating away to the quiet place and returning to spend time in close proximity with his followers. I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, we'd have to admit we are scared to give ourselves completely to either of those practices. I mean, when was the last time you intentionally cut yourself off from all noise and distraction, your phone, social media, for a whole day just to invest in your relationship with God. When it comes to community, yes, we hang out with friends, but when was the last time you were completely open and vulnerable about what's going on deep down in your life with someone else? I think if we're honest, a lot of the time, most of us hover in this middle ground of pseudo-community where we come along to church like this and we surround ourselves with Christian friends, but all the time we hold back a core part of who we really are. Now, it's understandable. There are all sorts of reasons for this. Here are three of the most common ones. First of all, individualism. To live in community, we have to commit. Problem is, what if something better comes along? And trust me, it will. It's like there's this fear of missing out, isn't there? The the whole choice anxiety of the culture we live in, the, the wanting to keep all of our options open. But I think it's much deeper than that. To commit to community is to put ourselves under the authority of Jesus as Lord. It's to, in some way, give up our autonomy, which is very much at odds with the culture that we live in right now. My point is, to live in genuine community, we can't just do whatever we want whenever we want. We have to give some of that stuff up. And this goes very much against the individualism that is so prevalent all around us. It's like, on the one hand, we'd have to say we, we hate feeling isolated and lonely. We, we crave connection. On the other hand, we so idolize personal freedom and our independence that we won't, we cannot sacrifice it in order to build and enjoy actual community. I think individualism works against community all the time. Secondly, idealism does as well. In his classic book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community 
is, get this, a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. In a similar vein, Tim Keller argues in his brilliant book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage, he argues that the main reason why marriages fail is because of wildly unrealistic expectations. And I think many of us make that exact same mistake with community. Now, as Christians, understandably, and perhaps rightly, we can have really high expectations, but we then waste our life waiting around for the perfect fit that doesn't exist in the real world. Or we bounce around from one church to another, to another, to another, in search of the ideal that is amiss. You know, it is so easy to destroy the reality of what is in the name of idealistic vision. And then, The third underminer of community is intimidation. I think for many of us, this is the root cause. Deep down, we're scared of it. We're fearful. And I'm not merely speaking to the introverts who might have a little bit of social anxiety around this. Introversion and extroversion have nothing to do with how relational or social someone is. Some of the most relational people I know who enjoy just this rich, life-giving web of relationships, they're heavily, heavily introverted. Some of the most lonely, superficial, transient people I know are these off-the-charts extroverts who seem to make friends everywhere they go. And I'm not having a dig at extroverts, just as I'm not vindicating the persecuted minority of us introverts. <laughs> well, maybe slightly. Uh, just redressing the balance ever so slightly. But really, I- I'm just saying that both introverts and extroverts are scared of what might happen if their real self is laid bare, if others see what they are really like beneath the surface. And so we have this tendency, don't we, to avoid genuine community because we are scared that who we really are will in some way come out and people will see. But what I'm wanting to convince you of this morning is that community is really the only way to grow into the person God wants us to be. It's the place where we mess up and people call us out and we recognize that's not who we want to be. We're we're vulnerable, we repent, we receive grace, we're accountable, we receive help from others. I want you to see community is very much uh, part and parcel of our spiritual growth. Spiritual growth, to put it another way, is a community project. But it is risky. 
I mean, the chances are you could get hurt. Or you could open up and potentially experience rejection or criticism. Or at least the perennial person who's there just to fix you every time you have an issue. But all that being said, it is still in community that the best growth occurs. As scary as community is, I think that's where Jesus does some of his best work. And so today is simply, well, first of all, a call to prayer and also a call to follow Jesus in community. And some of you, you know you're not doing that. You're, you're here, you, you have Christian friends, which is great. Don't, don't stop that. But you're not really deep down in community with others. Now, I get a lot of you are nervous of this, but hopefully I have persuaded you at least a little to start overcoming some of those fears and that as a result of this, you might at least consider giving it a go. As scary as community is, for all sorts of reasons, individualism, idealism, intimidation, just three of many, as scary as community is, it's just the best place for you to grow into all that God has for you. I mean, just think back to those 59 one another in commands that we looked at earlier. The message is, it is in community with others that we develop to be more like Christ. But the reality is, and I'm coming to a close in a moment, the reality is community doesn't happen by accident. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes intentionality over the long haul. And so if you're up for it, no pressure, no heavy sales pitch, only if you want to, if you're up for it, why not at least start by joining one of those life groups that Dawn flagged up are happening this term. Now, uh, just to tip you off, you can't sign up quite yet. Uh, wanted to keep the anticipation going a little longer. Um, so four o'clock this afternoon, uh, they'll be live. So if in the break you tried and it didn't work and said, oh, stuff that, I won't bother. Four o'clock this afternoon, uh, Rich assures me that the life group sign up will be remembered to be put up so that we can all, yes, he did forget. But four o'clock this afternoon, it will be live. Well, why don't you start by joining a life group. Just to say, in a perfect world, life groups would not exist. No offense to the life group leaders in the church, but in a perfect world, I'm not saying you wouldn't exist, but your life groups wouldn't exist. We just naturally find one another, and we just kind of easily, naturally live in deep community without any need for any organized groups. But I think part of the nature of living in a city like this, coupled with the sheer busyness of life, is that we need a bit of help, a bit of structure to find one another. I mean, let's be honest, this doesn't come naturally to a lot of us. And there are a whole bunch of people in the room who would say they feel pretty lonely or pretty isolated right now, which is kind of the rationale behind our life groups, where we meet together each week around a meal where we break bread together, where we are increasingly vulnerable with one another and we pray and we encourage and we challenge one another to grow in our faith. That's by way of an aside. The philosopher Albert Boardman, and the main reason for 
quite of these people is to give the impression that I'm slightly more learned and intelligent than actually I am. So it's all a front, all a facade, but at least I'm being vulnerable with you about that. But the philosopher uh, Albert Boardman, who uh, is a bit of an expert on the disintegration of family life, he once said, yes, fornication is bad. Yes, adultery is bad. But not sitting and eating together is worse. I don't think he's saying that fornication or adultery don't matter anymore. I think his point is that sitting down and eating together in family and community is not a secondary or an optional issue. Eating together is central to the life of any family, which incidentally, it's one of the many reasons why we practice the Lord's Supper in our life groups as part of a full meal around the table rather than here on a Sunday. So if you want to obey Jesus' command to break bread together, again, be in a life group or invite people around to your home in the context of hospitality and sharing food together, break bread with them. Now, for many of you, you don't need to hear this message. You're already in community. My call to you would be stay at it even when it's hard, even if it feels like it's going really well and you're seeing they're pretty smugly right now, now I'm a model of this, keep going at it even when it's hard. Or, or maybe it's simply a call to love that person who you are tempted to gossip about and avoid. Or, or possibly it's to have the hard conversation that you're trying to ignore like mad right now. Or maybe it's doing the hard work of offering forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. Or it could just be taking the next step, the next step towards accountability, the next step in vulnerability. Our point is, for each of us, there's growth in this. I just want to appeal to you, start where you're at. As hard as it is, as imperfect as it may feel, as messy as it might be, there is something here for all of us. Whatever it looks like for you, The call of Jesus is to community.